Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, Roger shares his story of coming from a family in construction to working at a big four in the real estate consulting division. We learn what motivated him to pursue accounting and finance in college, what he did when he realized he was behind his peers with no sophomore internship, and how he made the transition from audit successfully. Enjoy. All right, Roger, thanks so much for joining the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Patrick. It would be awesome if you could just give the listeners a short summary of your bio. Sure. Uh, Grew up in Southern California and kind of bounced around between Orange County and Los Angeles. Uh, Eventually, after high school, found my way uh, back up to Los Angeles and attended the University of Southern California um, with an emphasis really on accounting and real estate finance. Ultimately, graduated uh, tried to graduate on time, so left there with a four-year degree in accounting and went to go start work at a big four accounting firm as an auditor. Uh, during the recruiting process, really had looked into and tried to get an opportunity with a lot of the transaction real estate groups that at that time were just forming and kind of starting their businesses and their operating models. At that time, and this was um, kind of pre the 2008-9 crash, they were really looking for graduate students. So you needed some sort of real estate uh, master's or a real estate and finance uh, master's degree. And I was coming out of undergrad and really didn't have that degree. So was told to either take a, take another lap and go get a, a, an additional degree or go get some work experience and come back and try to apply. And so that's the route that I ultimately took. Um, I went through and completed about three years as an auditor. Um, making my way through through various engagements and tried to focus primarily primarily on financial services and real estate and about two and a half years in i had an opportunity to go take some real estate focused finance trainings that the firm was offering cool good i said cool that's awesome so you you took advantage yeah took advantage of some of the internal networking opportunities and trainings and uh, made it known that i tried to apply about three years earlier for the same position that was Still something I was looking into and, and interested in joining and uh, eventually had an opportunity to to interview with some of the individuals that were in that group in my local office. And uh, a couple months later, had the opportunity to, to get an offer and, and get a transfer over to the, the real estate consulting side or transaction consulting side mm-hmm. uh, from the audit side. Very cool. All right, let's start all the way back. And then you've been there for a, a, a long stint, almost almost the longest I've seen coming right out of school. <laughs> it's yeah. been over a decade let's just give the listeners a, an yeah, idea a um 
So you clearly love where you're at, which is awesome. Um, so let's let's go back to just undergrad, though. I want to get a little bit more of a, a background in terms of you know why accounting and why finance and you know USC is great. Did you grow up in like Irvine area? My wife's from there. Uh, yeah, just south of there, Michigan area. Yeah, yeah, cool. And so you um, you kind of ended up at, at USC, but were you always drawn to finance and accounting? Do your yeah. parents did? like? What did your parents do? Yeah, not originally. Um, I, I would say uh, my father was in construction, uh, was was in law enforcement prior to that. Um, my older brother ended up going to USC as well and, and did ultimately find himself at a construction company. Um, I was looking to be more of an individual behind the numbers, maybe not as, as much wanting to be out in the field. Uh, got that exposure earlier on in, in kind of my younger years growing up. And uh, I think the point was my dad really wanted to make sure that I didn't think working a field job was a great idea. So uh, I got that opportunity before I was, you know, able to really go out and, and work on my own. And, and he was yeah, right. He made I, you I work on some projects, get your hands Yeah, I worked on some projects. I did pickup work, you know, you know, growing up 10, 12, 15 years old and spent enough time swinging a hammer that knew I didn't want to do that for the next 50 years of my life. Very good. So when you got to USC, was there something, was there an internship? Was there some sort of groups or anybody like a mentor that had kind of gone down that path that said, you know, you should focus on this, but you just felt you were good at it? You know, it was, it was one of those things, right? I think I took my first accounting classes and midway through, I had all these classmates asking for help or asking me how I understood things so quickly. So it was just maybe somewhat of a natural gift that I picked up the content very quickly and was able to apply it. Uh, and so any of the scenario based, you know, modules or anything that we went through in class were kind of second nature to me. Mm -hmm. So I, at that point, probably sophomore year, I figured out, well, maybe this is something I really got to take seriously because my first year going into college, I was actually pre-med, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. um, and then I very quickly figured out that that probably wasn't where I was supposed to be. So I left. Went general. You did much better in accounting than you did in biology is what you were telling me. I think that's right. Yeah. I think it's a safe way to put it. So you, um, okay. So you're kind of going through, you, did you do anything your freshman summer, sophomore summer? When did, did you get any internships? How did that kind of progress through your? No, I, I actually was, it was a late bloomer. So I was pretty active in sports. And so sports was, you know, not, not at, you know, at the college level or not for, for the school. Um, but was pretty active in both working, I would say, and playing sports. So, what did you like to play? So, so I actually, uh, I actually raced motorcycles. So I did that for for oh, a good cool. while, and then had an had an accident my sophomore year, which I think uh, led me to resetting kind of priorities and objectives and where life was taking me. And I think that what did you what did you break on the accident? Nothing. Um, so uh, lower back. Uh, oh, <laughs> yeah. So, so L3 through five. Um, and, uh, you know, after that you reset your priorities and you figure out that you're not Iron Man, you're not invincible. And so I started really getting serious about school and, uh, taking it from there and, and running with it and was able to get my grades up and, um, you know, get into business school and, and really, you know, I think make a successful career at school in the short term, which ultimately led to some good recruiting efforts and, some good responses from recruiters. When and did you, how did you just start just applying to the big four, like junior year for internships? Tell me how that worked out, that whole recruiting. The, do you, if you remember like how many places you applied, the conversion rates, all that good stuff, if you remember. 
Yeah, so I remember. So, yeah, I mean, at first, it probably wasn't until my junior year, probably like literally showing back up on campus August, September of my junior year that I really figured out that I had to take it seriously. Um, I think coming back, you know, to school and hearing about all these, you know, students or classmates of mine that had sophomore internships, which to be honest, I was rather oblivious about. I think at the time, I was kind of surprised that they had already had some decent internship experience. So, you know, made it a point to get my name out there and try to meet as many people as I could. And so at this point, your resume is like a blank slate. <laughs> like nothing. Like it's, it's got a couple jobs up, you know, out there, but it's like, you know, swinging a hammer was one of them. Right. So not great, you know, directly, you know, corresponding experience to the positions or the jobs I was seeking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's kind of amazing. I mean, now I look at the the number of resumes that come across my desk and I just thank God that I, you know, went down that path a decade or a decade and a half ago because some of the resumes I see come across my desk are, are fairly substantial and amazing and um, would have definitely, you know, outpaced me by a fair, fair margin. Fair. Okay. So you're, you're kind of, you're coming in your junior year, you kind of realize, Oh, like all these other people had sophomore internships. So you start actually was like getting more aggressive with the networking and the, that whole spiel. What did you do? Was LinkedIn wasn't even around or it was just starting out then. So, you know, LinkedIn was, was just coming out. Uh, yeah. So LinkedIn was definitely a thing. I don't think it was definitely not obviously as widely used as it was today. I mean, it's it, like, even, oh, this is oh six, right? Like yeah, six oh seven. Yeah, yeah. No, I guess yeah, maybe oh five oh six seven. So somewhere in that range. Um, so Facebook, you know, is is just now starting up and and you know a thing and LinkedIn. It was like, how many of these things do you do you want to join? You know, MySpace was the the prior you know generation of the whole social media platform that was popular in the day. Um, and so it, I wasn't really, I would say, all that active on LinkedIn. I think I set up a profile, you know, as a student. But for the most part, it was on-campus activity. So getting involved with, you know, for me, definitely, you know, the accounting groups, um, the finance groups, the investment banking groups, um, the real estate investment groups. Uh, so were you were you talking to like any professionals during this whole thing, or they you're just getting info from like other students trying to be like, hey, you need to apply here, or, or was like the on-campus recruiting the the route you went and just went straight in? Yeah, it was kind of all of it. So trying to digest as much as I could. I I, I I had that sense of urgency because I knew I was in, in a way, in some respects, behind some of my peers um, and being, you know, ultra competitive. I didn't want to be behind or didn't want to be in that position for long, didn't like that feeling. So I tried to go attend as many events and soak up and learn as much as I could as quickly as possible. You know, definitely went out and, you know, got the school business cards that, that I kind of look back and kind of chuckle at, but I still get those time to time you know, the business cards that say what your degree is going to be in and your name and that you're, you're actually a student at the school. Do you chuckle now? Uh, do you recommend kids do that? If they like put, get their own business cards, maybe I know, I know on wall street oasis, there's probably been a couple threads making fun of kids who do that. Do you, do you recommend it or do you think it's a good thing or a negative thing? Yeah. You know, you know, you know, cause I, I would say it's a good thing and here's why um, you, you can laugh at it and, and, and maybe it's, you know, depending on, on what day you may chuckle more or less at, at the fact that someone, you know, could view it as being very serious. But as a recruiter now, I do like receiving them because sometimes I'll get a card and I'll make a note on the back of the card, you know, oh, this was the guy that, you know, grew up racing carts or this was the, you know, 
the girl that rode horses from the age of three and, you know, is a phenomenal, like just so I can kind of remember who that individual is. So not having something like that and not being maybe at an organized event, it does make it hard to remember, you know, someone's not giving you a resume, not giving you a card, not leaving something behind. But wouldn't you, wouldn't you suggest like they'd get the card from the professional and then they follow up over email? Isn't that a more traditional way? Or is uh, like, it's, or does the card allow you to get that card back almost? It, it depends who's chasing who at that point. So if they're, you know, I definitely appreciate when individuals will ask for my contact information or card um, and follow up with, with an email. And, and sometimes, you know, I think one of the things I'd suggest is if you have an interesting conversation with someone, make mention of it or make a joke, make light of it, you know, so that you kind of jog their memory about what that conversation was, was, you know, was about, or, you know, what you covered during that time. A lot of times, you know, as a, you know, professional from a recruiting standpoint, you may meet a hundred, you know, different students in an evening. So you want to be able to stand out as one of those students that, that is memorable, you know, hopefully in a good way. Um, uh, on the opposite side of the spectrum, if you do something to kind of shoot yourself in the foot and you're remembered for that, um, just remember that kind of, that does kind of stick with you, I think for, for a while, because, you know, we'll go back the next week as a firm or as a group and talk about the different candidates and it never fails that someone made some awesome first impression that, you know, gets them kind of excluded from the resume drop or their resume doesn't go very far in the process. So. You have examples of like what some kids have done that has just gotten them basically blackballed for, for the yeah, yeah, no, of course I do. Yeah. So, so, you know, I, I've got a number of those. So I would say, um, simple things though, mind your manners. Um, you know, if you are not comfortable, you know, regarding business etiquette or etiquette during meals, there are so many resources out there. I mean, let's be honest, you can learn anything from YouTube or pretty much anything in a Google search you can learn. So you really have no excuse. Are you telling me people are ordering spaghetti and shoving it down their face and like eating with their mouth open? Is that what you're talking about? Or like (laughs) ordering the lobster and (laughs) spraying it everywhere? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, maybe, you know, when, when, when learning proper etiquette, when passing a dish or asking for a dish and not touching other people's food with your hands, that's one that I do remember that, I think me and, and, and one of the partners I was with, we kind of looked at each other and were like, is this seriously happening right now? Like it was kind of, kind of comical, but, uh, and then I would say the other thing is approach all your comments. was touching your food on your plate? Uh, no, it wasn't me. It was two different students. And one, the one student was touching the other foods, the other student's food. And it was just awkward and kind of a strange situation, but they act like it was completely normal. I'm like, yeah, that's probably not. And, and, and I'll never forget that that partner made it very clear that that was unacceptable to me afterwards. And that, that that was basically a deal killer right then and there that we could not have that. We could not possibly have someone use that judgment in front of a client and, uh, and, you know, somehow, you know, make our, make, make their way in front of one of our clients eventually. Yeah. Fair. Okay. Anything else you remember? I think the stories are always fun. Uh, like people see. cutting other people off. Like I'm cutting you off a lot here. No, yeah, you know, so I think I think it's honestly just being empathetic to your surroundings. So, you know, this day and age, there's a, there's a bunch of different, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of different ways that you can offend people, whether that's politically, race, gender, you know, sexual orientation, you name it. 
just being empathetic to, that, that not everyone around you is going to think or believe the same way you do. And if you hear something that perhaps is inconsistent with your beliefs or, you know, your foundation, um, being able to accept that, at least hear someone out and not show direct disdain or sarcasm towards somebody, it really does no one any good. One, you make the individual that's trying to voice their opinion, you make them feel uncomfortable. And then a lot of times you create an uncomfortable situation for everyone there that's listening. And so someone that can't play well with others, you know, to say it kind of lightly, mm-hmm. uh, it's not someone that I think is generally real successful in recruiting for, for a lot of the larger firms that have a, a reputation and a standard to uphold. For sure. For sure. Really interesting. Okay. So you're basically coming in through junior year, you're going to all these events, but what is it? What does it result in? Like what actually comes out of that stuff? Is it an intern? Did you actually land an internship for junior summer? Yeah. So I, I, I landed an internship, um, you know, and along the way, I would say, you know, kind of being competitive and having friends that were competitive as well. Were you guys, of, were you guys talking a lot of shit to each other? Be honest, like, Oh, you're not going to get anything or were you like that kind of competitive, like openly fun competitive or. No, no, it was just, it was, honestly, it was kind of racking up offers. How many offers do you rack up? How many interviews did you rack up? How well did you do in the interviews? How soon did you hear back? Um, and I would say I probably, you know, wasn't one to be bragging. I mean, I wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't one that was racking up dozens and dozens of interviews, but the, the interviews that I did get, you know, the half a dozen or so, you know, maybe, you know, maybe closer to a dozen interviews ultimately that, that honestly result in this, you know, level one or a phase one, phase two interview and mm-hmm. office visits or, you know, invites, you know, out to dinner or what have you. Um, a lot of those interviews, I just took them very seriously. So I had friends that had so many interviews that they kind of didn't, they're like, I can't prepare for all of them. So I'm just going to kind of wing it. And, and, and honestly, I think when you do that, it's probably best to, to not do that if you're not seriously considered working for, for a particular firm or company. So oftentimes you may be taking away a spot from someone who is seriously considering working for the firm and, and they didn't even get the opportunity because let's say it's someone that is set for, you know, big four and they're definitely going big four, but they rack up 10 interviews with regional and national firms. Well, if they know that they've never accepted a position and they are going to get an offer from a couple of the big four firms and that's the direction they're headed, they just stole an interview spot from a, a few of their classmates that might not have the grades or the pedigree to go big four, but really wanted that opportunity with a regional or national firm and then didn't even get the shot. And so mm-hmm. where are they now? So I would say be mindful and, and put your efforts into. That's you know, an interesting point. Them. I mean, I, part of what I often preach is just to take every interview you can get just because the reps are so critical. So like from the other, other side of the coin, oftentimes I'm like, you take every single interview you could ever get on and you, tr- you but you treat it seriously. Um, and you, you try to learn about the firm because sometimes you're surprised. Sometimes you think, you know, a company and you think there's no, I mean, yeah, if there's no way I agree with you, but if there's, if there's a a chance, I think turning that interview down and doing like a mock interview like this with somebody's very different, man, than the real thing. I, I agree with you too. So if you have the ability, the availability, the ability and the time to take them all seriously, do it, you know, without a doubt especially kind of earlier on in your career. But if you've already talked to a lot of the firms, I mean, I figured out pretty quick that there were, there was a firm or two in the big four where I really wasn't all that interested. So uh, one of them, I I did actually withdraw my application um, after an event. I just looked, this probably isn't the right place for me. 
Don't burn do you, bridges. Do you think you would have done that in 2009 if it wasn't 2006? Uh, great when, question. When I, yields, I, when yields are offers are very hard to come by and stuff like that. I mean, I think maybe it was part of the time. Like you knew you were going to get an offer maybe, or you had that confidence. Maybe it's just personality. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I, I think it depends on everyone's individual situation. Yeah. I mean, if you're worried about not landing an offer, ultimately, right. You don't want to, you know, look back and hindsight's always 2020, but you don't want to look back at your situation and be like, well, I, I already, I told three firms that I wasn't interested in the six. I was interested in all the, you know, declined the offer. You yeah. know, so if you're in that situation, you probably don't feel real great about your prior decisions. Yeah, I say oftentimes, at least from my perspective, when I was in college, there's a lot of over- overconfidence, especially if you've done well in school, you're at a good school, your GPA is pretty, you're thinking, oh, I got all these interviews. I mean, I had like 12 first round interviews. I only landed one offer. <laughs> so like, I mean, it was, it was in a bad time. It was 02, right after everything went down. So it, expl- it explained some of it, but um, at several final rounds. So I would just encourage people not to be too, um, too picky early and to keep your net pretty broad and just explore, at least in the informational interview, especially in the information interview portion of it, because man, that's, that's something you don't want to be overly confident in the economy turns south or something like COVID happens. And then you're um, stuck on the outside looking in with no job you know, moving back in with the parents. So anyway, so you're, <laughs> yeah, very true. so, so, okay. So let's, let's go back to, to the story. So you're, you kind of had a, it sounds like half a dozen first rounds and then you kind of progressed on several second rounds. You're doing well. Um, tell me how that worked. Like, did you know you were going to do audit or was that what you did in the summer? Yeah, so that's what I that's what I did during the summer. I don't know. I, that's a, why are you smiling? Why are you laughing right now? You seem like that, I think that's what I maybe figured out that audit wasn't what I was going to do for thirty years. So I think it hit me there probably during my internship that you know I can do audit. I think it's a great start. I think you learn a ton of skills. You learn a ton about business in general. You know, you pay your dues, but you get a lot out of it. And I think you mature a lot. You develop some technical skills. But you knew in your internship that that, that wasn't something you were going to do for 30 years, yet you still did three years in that group. Because yeah, but... Go ahead. <laughs> because it was at a good firm, it was something you felt like it was the right place to be, or were there other reasons? Yeah, it was... It's a combination of things again. Well, I know financial crisis right during the middle of it. Yeah, that's right. So, um, yeah. And so, you know, having been kind of inside of a, a, a rather large bank's office, kind of the day that a lot of the collapse occurred and, and kind of the weeks and months that followed um, was pretty eye opening. You see 50 people at a, on a floor at a time getting laid off and not, not showing back up on, you know, after leaving on Friday and the next Monday, they're staying at home and seeing that kind of happen week in and week out. I think that got real pretty quick. So it was one of those things where I think a lot of us went into survival mode because I think all the big four firms had layoffs at my level and, and at the junior levels, there just wasn't a need for as many, you know, staff accountants or staff auditors, you know, even going up through some of the junior, you know, supervisory levels, you know, senior audit assistant or um, in charge and some of the other positions that are held. I I would assume audit probably 
weathered the storm better better than better than most groups though is that accurate because like uh, there's still auditing i mean i'm sure there was cuts there were cuts but people still need to get their audit done right <laughs> i would say yes but we're going with skeleton crews so i remember yeah. some some of the audits that i was on previously where we had maybe just a team of five and we went down to two um one of them ultimately we went down to just myself and so i'm working by myself which used to be a team of four or five and you know you you know you have to fill a pretty big set of shoes when you're a first or second year and all of a sudden your experienced seniors and you know even your managers get let go i mean you still had the responsibility to help make sure that audit got through, you know, to completion. Were um, you stressed out about that? Did you feel like you might lose your job at some point? You know, I think I, I think I probably, you know, back then was a little stressed out about it, but I've always been fairly confident in like my ability to go find, go find a job somewhere. Maybe it's not even doing the same thing, but, you know, pick myself up off the ground and go find a dollar. Um, you know, doing something kind of moving forward. You could always swing the hammer. Right. <laughs> so, okay. So you're, um, you kind of weather that storm, it sounds like, and as you're coming out of the, you know, as things are stabilizing a little bit, although still pretty rickety, you kind of make that transition internally to the real estate side. Um, can you talk a little bit about just for the listeners that aren't familiar, what like a real estate consulting position looks like what are you actually doing who are your clients what do you what's the type of analysis day-to-day yeah so so it's, it's honestly it's quite broad so if you look at what we do as part of a big four firm you know frankly if i'm honest you know and, and i know fairly well the other counterparts you know in other big four firms none of us are very large in terms of the overall scale of the firm nationally or at least globally you know if you if you look at the you mean specifically you mean specifically the real estate groups correct okay yeah. if you look at the tens of thousands of people that each of the firms employs across you know the accounting and the tax and the consulting sides um especially if you go so far as to look at you know the individuals that specialize in implementations and internal systems the real estate side of the the house is very very niche and very very small um, in terms of overall headcount um, so like 120, 300, but what's small? 10. Yeah, so yeah, call it, you know, somewhere, you know, around a hundred plus or minus 50. And I think most of the, most okay. of the big firms now, okay. you know, where a lot of their total professional counts are above 50,000, probably somewhere South of a hundred, but definitely, you know, many, many multiples of, of what the real estate group would ever hope to be. Got it. So yeah, so day to day, like what types of engagements are typical for like, who are your clients, I guess? So I'd say most of our clients, I mean, range from any, anything from, you know, family offices all the way up into the, the global, you know, 100, you know, a lot of the fortune 500 companies have massive real estate holdings. They may not be in the business of real estate, but they either use, own or operate real estate as a, as a key portion of their business. Um, you really look at any any p and l statement you know of, of these large firms kind of across the globe and, and it really is something that would i would say does blanket the gro- globe it's not specific to the us or to europe or asia but all of these companies that have large operations they are going to be users of real estate in some you know shape or form whether that's leasing massive amounts of real estate um or they own it and 
a lot of times since that's not their primary core business, they don't have a real robust or as robust as they might need real estate, you know, group, you know, something like just a corporate real estate group that can manage and do all the things that are involved in operating a portfolio of that size. So we come in and really help a lot of our clients through that. So whether it's diligence on the front end of a transaction, and it can be a diligence activity specific for the acquisition or development of real estate, or it can be, you know, in conjunction with the acquisition of a business. And they're now acquiring either owned real estate that is currently owned by the target company, or maybe perhaps they're going to be stepping into a large sum of leases. And so they need to figure out really what is the liability there? What are they stepping into and how do they digest that? And then ultimately bring that onto the balance sheet when they look to consolidate at some point down the road. So I would say that that is a large majority of our business because as much as we may be valuation and consulting professionals, we tend to at least have a background or exposure to the accounting and financial reporting side of the house. Or in addition to that, um, if we don't know how to, how to figure that out, we've obviously got you know, very deep Rolodex of individuals and professionals that have done that before and can help us out and help our clients through that process. For sure. And can you talk to me a little bit about what what the transition was like for you going from an auditing role to a more like traditional consulting role internally? Yeah. So, so that transition was, was really pretty interesting, you know, especially at the time Um, when I joined, um, you know, I would say a bulk of our work was really helping clients figure out and navigate their way through impairment analysis to make sure that they didn't have portfolios or large assets on their books and records and sitting there on the balance sheet at maybe a value that was above any recoverable amount. Um, And so learning that whole process, which was a first for me and going through my first wave of, you know, really back-to-back impairment exercises and and impairment analysis was interesting. Um, But that's really where I cut my teeth is trying to look at other analyses that were put together by clients internally and trying to help them figure that out or by receiving analysis that were done by third-party preparers, you know, or perhaps outside consultants, um, similar to, to my own group that were prepared for the purposes of supporting an audit and trying to poke holes to that and really make sure that ultimately the estimates that were used for accounting purposes were appropriate and, and kind of acceptable in the circumstances. Cool. And then, so when you, that you cut your teeth on that, but then when you transitioned, was it, it's like you went from all this impairment analysis to, you know, obviously in the, to, to doing more proactive stuff or was a lot of the real stuff, real estate stuff also similar? Yeah. So this was all impairments. Maybe I should have clarified better, but this was all impairment specific to real estate. Oh, okay. Looking only at real estate assets, you know, um, if we're and looking- when you were on the audit side, what types of product, how was it different? So I guess on the audit side, you're really, you know, auditing the balance sheet, you're auditing the PL, the you know, statement of cash flows, mm-hmm. you're auditing the whole company. When I moved on to the real estate side and we were preparing analysis either used by auditors and tested by auditors, or we were assisting our own internal audit firm um, by reviewing a lot of the work that was thrown their way. And they didn't have kind of the specialization in real estate or the, the background in real estate to digest, you know, a 10 year DCF and look at various cap rates and discount rates and the various, you know, market leasing assumptions that go into developing maybe an income approach analysis, which is, you know, for the most part, a lot of the 
the, the key drivers, you know, in value or in valuation, if you kind of set aside the cost and market approach. And can you t- tell me a little bit about, so thanks for that. Can you tell me a little bit about just how you thought about um, your career starting out? I mean, obviously it was like survival initially, right? <laughs> Which makes a lot of sense. And then as you kind of applied for this real estate consulting role internally, can you tell me about a little bit of like who you had to talk to internally? Was it one of those things where it's like technically goes through HR, but you still need like the blessing of your manager, your senior manager, or it's not going to go well, or is it a truly like internal request transfer that's, that's, um, that stays confidential? Yeah, it's, it's, I would still say it's not as easy as it could be. Um, a lot of times when you look at, you know, the various, you know, accounting entities that may, you know, be under the same umbrella with, you know, real estate consulting or some sort of valuation and transaction consulting group, no one wants to lose good people. But I think when it gets right down to it, you would rather see a good auditor go over to the consulting side rather than walk out the door period and go work for another competitor, maybe, or go work in industry. Um, so at the end of the day, I think they try to hold back auditors as, as much as they can, but there does become a breaking point where the auditors just, their heart's not in it. They're just not, they're, they're eventually going to set themselves up for failure if they can't stomach 80 hour work weeks and kind of working through the night on something that they really have, have disdain for and can't stand doing. So ultimately, you know, I think that was, were those 80 hour weeks, was that only in busy season or was it like year round basically for you? No. Yeah. I mean, I think that's definitely in busy season only for, for the auditors. I mean, and that's like three months, three months or so. Yeah. I would say it depends on your clients, but sometimes it starts kind of in October and go through November. It might slow down a tick in December. And then you pick back up kind of first week of January and you'll probably go pretty strong through early April for the most part is kind of in my experience, or at least through maybe 331. Um, on the consulting side, it's been a bit different. Um, we tend to stay fairly busy year round. So very infrequently do we have 80 hour work weeks, but very infrequently do we ever see 40, 45, 50 hour work weeks. So yeah. we, we tend to work in excess of that, but probably, you know, have more stable hours throughout the year. For sure. And so can you talk specifically when you were trying to make that transition, you said you applied once and they said, well, now you need to either work more or you need to go get a master's. Yep. What was the thought process of just sticking around? Was it more just like, Hey, I don't know if I leave with the, the great recession or whatever that was happening then was it, and I'm trying to tie it back to today. If there's people in a similar situation of thinking of back to, to school right now during COVID, do you think it's better to stick around and get that experience? Or do you feel like, Hey, if you had just gone to school for a year, got your master's, it would have been a, a faster, but like looking back at yourself, what would you suggest to kids in a similar boat? Yeah, I don't, I don't think I regret the path that I took, you know, could I have gone back to school, missed out on a year of salary, you know, paid a decent sum of money to collect, you know, you know, a, a, an additional degree. Sure. I could have gone that route. I actually asked the same question to a bunch of the partners um, throughout the recruiting process. I said, look, this is ultimately what I want to do what would you suggest? What would you do in my shoes? And frankly, it was pretty unanimous. Um, at least the partners I talked to, they said, if, you know, look, if you come out of school with a master's program and you've got zero years of work experience, you have zero years of work experience. If you come work for the firm and you do well, and you've got a year of 
great work experience operating at a very high level. And now you've earned a salary for a year and hopefully got some sort of, you know, merit increase or increase in base compensation. If I look at those two individuals and compare them side by side and, and really try to decide on who's worth more money at the end of the day, as far as what is their value that they bring to the firm or to the entity, they would a hundred times out of a hundred say that it's the individual with a year of work experience. Um, so that's kind of the route I went. Um, that was the advice that I got from a number, I would say probably four or five individuals gave me essentially the same advice. And mm -hmm. so I took that and kind of ran with it. Ultimately, no one saw, you know, seven, eight, nine happening. And so what was supposed to be a year or two and jump ship turned into three for me. Mm -hmm. Still think I was probably, you know, in a, in a lot of respects, pretty fortunate to have found the, the, the spot that I did when I did. Totally. And, uh, yeah. yeah, it was still a tough time back then. It wasn't like it, it wasn't like all roses <laughs> in 2010, right? <laughs> no, no, yeah, that that definitely was it was still it was still tough for a lot of people. I mean, there were still individuals that had been let go a year or so prior still looking for work. So, right. Okay, man. Well, you've had a long run there. Any any other words of wisdom before we call it anything you'd like to share? You know, it's interesting to see kind of your path sticking around with one firm. I feel like nowadays it's much more common to see people coming out and then jumping every year to three years from firm to firm to firm. What do you think has been the biggest benefit of sticking around in one place? You know, that's a, that's a great question. I would say the biggest benefit to sticking around is once you make a name for yourself and hopefully that's a name for yourself in a good way, you know, to, to constantly jump from firm to firm and recreate that from the ground. And even though, you know, as you continue to get experience in an industry or, you know, maybe even it's within a demographic area, if you build a name for yourself and it, you've got something good going, it becomes really hard for you to throw a lot of that away or lose some of that and start from maybe not square one, but, you know, start a good ways back and as far as building up that reputation at a new organization. And so what that's allowed me to do is I've built a reputation, you know, with the current firm that I'm with and I've been able to just build on that and focus on building on that, not building it back up from the ground. I haven't had to go back to a foundation for many, many years. So, you know, I, every time I go to a new role or new position within the firm, I start wherever I left off, you know, 12th floor, 15th floor, you know, in the, in the course of kind of building my skyscraper. And so that, that's one thing that's let me really focus on not trying to make a name for myself. My name's been, been made already by the past, you know, decade or more of service here at the firm. And, and so that's really helped me get opportunities um, that I probably wouldn't have had at other firms just because I begin to, you know, have a network that is now national and reach out to individuals that I probably would take a, take a good while to figure out who's who across the nation within, you know, the platform that the big four firms operate on. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, although it may seem better to, you know, jump shit for five grand or 10 grand or 20 grand, um, I think there's definitely some merit to kind of staying where you're at. And, you know, you may not be, you know, compensated what you think you're worth right now, but give it a year or two or five years. And I think a lot of times you'll find that people will eventually recognize that you are bringing a lot of value to the organization. 
and that you would leave a hole if you left the organization. And so therefore you, you may start to get compensated or rewarded. And keep in mind that that reward doesn't even have to be in the form of compensation. A lot of times it's exposure, it's opportunities, it's, um, you know, it, it could be in the form of, you know, travel and, you know, meeting people and um, getting exposure that's well beyond anything you can really put dollars on. Cool. I love it. Anything else uh, you'd share in terms of wisdom of, you know, having been at one place for a long time or just for the, the young kids coming out of school now? listening to this in terms of how that, how they should start their career in this kind of uncertain times. Yeah. I'd say just be patient. Like I know everyone wants to, you know, you know, come out of school and make seven figures. And unless you're making seven figures, it feels like you're not making progress. But I think the fact of the matter is you just have to be patient and that if you work hard enough and kind of stay at it and build the skill set and, and make yourself value valuable to an organization, you'll get there, but it doesn't happen overnight. I mean, no one has been an overnight success. I mean, it may seem that way. You read about people or see them in the news, but you forget that they've been working in their basement for the last two decades to, to finally get to that spot. And then they finally pop and it's something they've worked for, you know, sometimes an entire lifetime. So just realize that it doesn't happen overnight and stay patient. Stay cool. at it. Let's leave on that. Stay patient. Thanks, man. I really appreciate your time, Roger. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Patrick. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. Until next time.